Hello and welcome to the First Prez Mommy podcast, the show for people on the go, who like to stay in tune with the conversations at our church. Today, Pastor Clint Tolbert speaks about the book of Philemon. In it, the Apostle Paul encourages Philemon to embody the implications of the gospel by forgiving and receiving his runaway slave back as a brother in Christ. Let's hear today's message. I love to watch when we uh, baptize a little baby. I love to see the smile on her face. I hope you could see it from back there. I also love to see the smile on your face. Um, it is affirmation that, that, that passing our faith from one generation to another is indeed one of the core values of our congregation and one of the most important things a church can give itself to. And that's why this morning we not only celebrate Isabella's bap- baptism, but we, we have been uh, with special intention praying for our children and our youth as they go back to school. We also pray for their parents and teachers. We're going to do that in a special way uh, later on in the service. But think for a moment about what we're praying for. What do we hope for as we pray for little ones entrusted to us? Amongst other things, is it not that they might grow mature, transform, and change into the people we know that God created them to be and that we we want them to be. In fact, we pray that not just for them, we pray that for everyone, for, for ourselves as well, that we want to see transformation, that we would take hold of life as God intended it for us. Do you ever think about how does that happen? How does someone change? transform, grow? I'm sure there's tons of answers, but it occurred to me as I was reading this passage, there are two really, really important elements for transformation to take place. The first is an environment where someone feels safe enough to try, even though they will likely make an error or a mistake at first. I was thinking about kids as football season has started. They just had the first, first football game. I do have to say, since I brought up some time ago that mommy was 1 in 39, they just won. It's kind of exciting. That's right. So, so imagine you're a young person on the football field or any sports field for that matter. You're trying to learn a play. You're trying to catch the ball. And as you do it and miss, the coach yells, Catch the ball. He does it every time you miss. I'm sure Bob never did that, right? Never, right? If you hear that over and over and over again, and you're thinking in your mind, Coach, that's what I'm trying to do. Would you not shut down, give up, not grow at all? you got to have a place of welcome, invitation, a place to make mistakes. At the same time, there has to be an expectation of growth. Kristen Woodard often teaches kids piano in here, and I thought, well, could you imagine if Kristen had a child here and she, and she just said, you know, the most important thing is that you just have fun. Play whatever you want. It doesn't really matter. Would a child grow? Of course not. This tension 
between providing a place of, of welcome and invitation and a place of expectation and challenge is critical to see transformation take place. And though you may not notice it at first, it's exactly what God's word puts before us this morning. In the, in the letter to Philemon, there is the expectation of transformation. But how? By providing an environment of grace. For this is necessary not just for a child. But for all of us, as we seek to follow Jesus and be transformed more and more to look like him. And so I do, I do hope, as Chris came up, you, you got out your journal and that you have it open and before you. If you did not, I'd encourage you to do it now. If you don't have one of these, please grab a pew Bible. Turn to page 1202. We'll look at this letter together. While you could just listen, I'll be pointing out verses and words, and I think it will Uh, serve you well to be able to have the text in front of you. As you're turning there, allow me to pause one more time and pray. Lord God, we do uh, come to your word believing that it is more than simply an interesting ancient letter. It is that, but it's so much more. That by your spirit, it is your very word to us. It is the way you reveal yourself to us and And call us into relationship with yourself. It's the way we know about salvation and the hope that we have in Jesus. And so, Lord, would you speak? Speak to each one of us. Call us to take that next step with you. Change us more and more into your likeness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me make sure you kind of get a basic understanding of what we've read. Again, this is a letter, as Chris said, written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison in Rome. And it's a personal letter written to this man, Philemon. It's personal, but not private. Do you notice at the outset that he, he, he names Philemon, but also names a few others and then writes to the church in his home? I think this is important to recognize, for for Paul is calling Philemon to some pretty challenging actions, and he's doing so in front of some other people. It seems from the letter that, that Philemon is somebody that Paul hasn't just heard about, he knows intimately. Look at verse 7. Paul says, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, Philemon. Or near the end, verse 19, he seems to indicate that Philemon owes even his own self, his salvation, his life to the Apostle Paul. Now, again, Philemon lives in the city of Colossae, and, 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 and Paul didn't establish that church. Paul didn't go there as far as we know it, but, but Philemon, as a man of uh, means and standing, maybe traveled maybe heard Paul preach somewhere else. Somehow they had a personal encounter. And and so Paul is speaking to him based on that personal friendship. The letter is here before us as part of our study in the book of Colossians. I know some of you are guests with us. So we've been studying the book of Colossians. Again, another letter written by the Apostle Paul all summer long. 
And Philemon is rightly taken up as we make that study together. Colossians was a public letter. Philemon is a personal letter. Colossians is a call to the church as a community. And I hope we've all grasped it. The, the main idea in Colossians comes up in Colossians 1.27. If you have your journal, hopefully you've got it underlined, starred, any of that. There we read that God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is to say, God is revealing a mystery in the world. He's revealing who he is and, and this life he's created. He's revealing what life is all about, and he does that through Christ's presence in us. Remember, the you is plural. It's he who is the hope of glory. And so Colossians is suggesting as we pursue and embody the person of Jesus in our midst as the church, the mystery that is known fully only by God is revealed more and more in each of us and then through us together to the world. You know, we're living in days where you frequently hear people say, I don't believe in organized religion, or it's, it's just me and God. I, I kind of get that for different reasons, but that's not the way God designed it. Colossians, amongst other passages in Scripture, is saying, look, it is through our life together, both as the way we bless one another and, frankly, the way we step on one another's toes and then work it out, that God is revealed. And so that's what we've been studying, right? That God cares very much about our life together as the church. We've seen that in Colossians. We've seen that theology established, and then that theology pointed toward practical relationships. Like a couple of weeks ago, we talked about, all right, so what does that mean as husbands and wives? Or what does that mean as parents and children? Or last week, what does that mean in the ancient world if you're a master with a slave, both of whom come to faith, both of whom are a part of the church. And that's where Philemon comes in. And it's really interesting because here we have this public letter in Colossians and now this personal letter written to Philemon. And it's going to challenge him. How? Well, Philemon was in relationship with this young man, Onesimus. Onesimus was, or probably frankly still is, Philemon's slave or bond servant. Philemon ran away. Maybe, we don't know for sure, but maybe stealing some of Philemon's possessions or goods to provide for himself as he ran. We don't know that for sure, but look at verse 18. Paul says, if he's wronged you or owes you anything, like maybe, there, maybe he took something. Maybe it's just, not just the absence of his labor, but he took something from you. Onesimus runs away. Presumably, he meets the apostle Paul somewhere in Rome. Paul leads him to faith and mentors him such that they develop a deep and intimate friendship and relationship. Look at some of the words that Paul uses. He is my very Heart, he says. Paul loves this young man. Even so, Paul practices what he preaches. And so as an exercise of his faith and trust in Jesus, 
Paul calls Onesimus to go back to Philemon. But he doesn't send him alone. He sends him with a group of brothers and a letter from Paul to Philemon. It's on the basis of the gospel in this letter that that Philemon is called to receive and forgive Onesimus, but not just receive him back again as bondservant or slave, but to receive him as a brother in Christ. Look Look at verses 15 and 16, and you'll see it for yourself. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Paul's saying this is the whole point. Now, just for a moment, some, again, look at the Bible and a passage like this and, and wonder, why doesn't the Bible just condone slavery? They question or criticize the faith. We talked about that a lot last week. And so if you have that question, you can go find the, the sermon on YouTube and, we'll, and, and, and consider that with us. But I want you to notice here that the Bible, yes, does not uh, abolish slavery or, or say end it now, but it, it no doubt puts an expectation of change before Philemon and anyone else. The Bible's not primarily interested with worldly or institutional change. Remember that. Anytime someone tries to use our faith to, to force you to some decision at the ballot box, The Bible's most concerned about the change that needs to take place in the human heart because when that changes, institutions and civilizations will follow. There is no doubt that God's word is calling Philemon to change, and it's not just Philemon, but you and me as well. How will each of us face the challenges that God places before us, many of them because of our relationship with one another, because of the tension that comes in the life of the church, because of our desire to follow Jesus. How will we change? How will we get better? How will we transform? How will we look more like Jesus? And what role do we play in one another's lives for that to happen? That's the main point of this letter, I think. And so I want to take it up now less as history and more as God's word to each of us for just a few moments. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, I think, offers the main idea for this whole letter. It says, the sharing of your faith may become effective. Paul's praying that I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This is the main idea, the most important thought, though it's not necessarily a thought that's easily understood or or grasped for a couple of different reasons. One, One, there's a translation challenge here. Notice the phrase, the sharing of your faith. I don't know what you think about, but anytime I hear that phrase, the sharing of your faith, I'm I'm thinking about somebody who tells somebody else about Jesus. Evangelism. And while that's an important, important and biblical concept, that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about the sharing of our faith uh, one to another, but the sharing of our faith together as a community. The Greek word behind that is the word koinonia. 
Koinonia means the act of sharing in the activities and privileges of an intimate association or group. That as we share life together, both blessings like a baptism and challenges like a board meeting, not always, right? But whatever, that we, that we, something's going to happen. Paul continues to pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. It, that is to say, it'll cause something. There's a, there's, a, there's a result from us sharing life together. What is that? Well, that, that, that we would grow in the full knowledge of every good thing that can be ours for the sake of Christ. Again, you didn't sign up for a Greek lesson this morning, but I'm, I'm throwing two words at you. I never do that, right? That word knowledge is epigenosis, right? There's a definition up here. I'll, I'll let you just read for yourself if you want, but, but in essence, epigenosis is saying knowledge, but not just head knowledge that goes nowhere. It is knowledge that fleshes itself out in our action, positive or negative. It plays out in our relationship, in the way that we live. So Paul's saying that our life together will lead to our gr- uh, 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 an understanding of a knowledge about God and God's way in the world and who we are that affects the way that we live. That's what he's saying to Philemon. Hey, Philemon, my prayer for you is this, that as you continue amongst the body and as you press up against brothers and sisters in Christ, one of them being Onesimus, some of these others who are traveling with my direction and my heart, as you are considering the gospel more and more, as you are thinking about your own faith, you will change. And you will receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, not as a bondservant, but as a brother. This this call is based in the gospel. What is the gospel? Again, it's the recognition that all of us were at one time slaves. Slave, maybe not to a person, but to something. Some of us were slaved to our ambition, slaved to our job, slaved to money, slaved to worry, slaved to some sort of substance, a, a drug or alcohol, something. The scripture says we are all enslaved, and Jesus has come to set you free. That by his death on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin, the sin that enslaved you. And by the presence of his spirit in your life, you can be free. Somehow, some way, Philemon heard that. It changed his life. We've heard that. It changes our life. And therefore, we have a responsibility to hold that out to others. Paul puts that before Philemon, and that's before all of us as well. And it is not just our personal witness or testimony to that reality, but our life together that enables that knowledge to take place in someone's life. So so I want to just take a couple of minutes to look into this letter and, and dig out some cues for how do we 
embody a life like that to one another? How do we make sure that our fellowship is one where somebody doesn't shrink back because they think, oh, they're going to make a mistake and everyone's going to judge them, and at the same time doesn't say, you know, it really doesn't matter. We just want you here. How do we maintain a fellowship that supports each of us growing in Christ? I look through the letter and I, I want to point out three cues to you. Three because that's what preachers do, right? There's three points. There's probably more. Maybe there's less. I don't know. But three sounded good. And so I, I, I'll put these in front of you. Some of you take notes. You might want to write these down. How can we help create an environment here where each person is growing more and more uh, as they seek to follow Jesus? One, strive to be someone who refreshes others. Do you notice in Philemon, Paul mentions about Philemon twice in verse 7 and verse 20. He goes, Philemon, I am so grateful for you because you refresh me every time I see you. Now, Paul might be using the technique of the old compliment sandwich, you know. I'm going to say something kind, then I'm going to deliver the meat, and then I'm going to say something kind again. But I don't think so. I, I think Paul did encounter Philemon, and I think Philemon really blessed Paul. I wonder if Philemon sent him some letters, sent him some notes. I, I, it seems to me that Paul is genuine, and, and Paul would need it because, boy, life is hard. It's hard for Paul. I mean, he was stoned a few times almost to death, shipwrecked, imprisoned. He wondered how he would, you know, pay for the next meal sometimes. And there were people in his life, like Philemon, who refreshed him, encouraged him, urged him on. Do you have people like that? More importantly, are you someone like that? You know, again, we come together to worship. And all of us are seeking to follow Jesus. Now, does every, anybody have it all figured out yet? Raise your hand if you do. Right? No, we don't. There's always going to be room for growth. There's always going to be something wrong. There's always going to be something that could be done better. Here's the question. As you come into community... Are you somebody who is known to be the one who points out those things? Or are you somebody like Philemon who is a refresher of the faith? Listen to Alistair Begg preach on this passage. He goes, so are you somebody who, who puts air in another person's balloon? You know, you're just in their presence and you go, oh, it's like your chest. Oh my goodness, I feel so good and encouraged. Or are you somebody who takes the air out of their balloon. You know that person, right? It's like, oh, no, I don't want to. Because if I go talk to them, they're just going to point out the next wrong thing. And they may try to do it kindly. And they may have good intentions. But I just am exhausted every time. Friends, life is hard. And Paul, I believe, means it when he says to Philemon, I thank my God every time... I pray for you because you're somebody that refreshes me in the faith. Let's try to be that for one another.
It's not to say that, obviously, we've got to give ourselves to the, to the gaps and to the things that work, but when you come into one another's presence, ask yourself, hey, am I, am I building up? Am I putting air in their balloon? Because you know how hard life is, and it's hard for them too. So that's one. Strive to be someone who refreshes others. Two, lead others to do good. Don't compel them. Lead them to do good. Don't compel them. Look at, look at verse 14. Paul says, I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. He's basically saying, so I was tempted to force you to do what I want you to do. But I recognize that when you try to compel or force somebody to do good, here's what happens. If they do that good, you have stolen from them any opportunity for joy or for growth, or for celebration. They just did it because they had to, not because their character was transformed. You recognize that, don't you? I was thinking about this this week. So my oldest son, Isaac, uh, was home from school for just two weeks. He's now back. He had some financial challenges. Asked for help. We said, okay. But when you come home, tell you what, the house needs painted. That's going to be your job, right? No, not the whole house. I'm not that cruel. Just the soffit part, right? It was some peeling paint. But a couple of days worth of work. So he comes home. We spent some time together. I made sure he knew. I taught him how to paint. I taught him how to scrape. We talked about ladder placement. We did all of that on Monday. And then he had the rest of this week to finish the job. He was leaving on Friday, so he thought. I wake up on Tuesday, come to work. He's in bed. Wednesday, he's in bed. I'm sitting there going, do I wake him up and compel him to follow through, or do I just lead him as gently but as clearly as I can? Thursday, I got up and left. Job was not done. Came home. It was done. He did it. I couldn't believe it. Somehow, the house was painted. And he left the next morning for school. Now, there are still paint chips on the ground. And the ladder was still leaning against the house. But, hey, count your victories, right? If I would have forced him to get up before I came into work and compelled him to do the work the opportunity for growth would have been stolen from him. But by leading him to it, I was able to say, son, I'm proud of you. I'm really grateful. Your work ethic is good. Now, sometimes leading will feel a little bit compelling. Right? If you're reading this letter, you might go, wait a minute. Does Philemon really even have a choice I mean, Paul's putting it so strongly, right? This is what I know you will do because I know who you are. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Does Philemon even have a choice to say no? Yeah, he does. He's an accomplished adult. He's somebody with means. He could have pushed back, and he didn't. 
But yes, sometimes leading one another to do good will feel kind of like compelling. There will be some pressure, and you've got to figure out how much do you put there. I thought, thought about the very words I often use with you each Sunday about the offering. Maybe these will be familiar to you. I quote some version of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 when I say, hey, give as God has given to you generously and joyfully, but, but don't give in this way. Don't give if you feel compelled, or don't give if you feel like it's an obligation. You, does that sound familiar to you? I say it most every week. Now, let me ask you, does that mean if you're sitting in the pew and you're just not feeling like giving that particular Sunday that your pastor thinks you shouldn't give? No, of course you should give. Of course you should make an offering. Sometimes leading means prodding a little bit to remind one another of what we should do, what is good for us, even if we don't feel like it in the moment. My hope is that no one has ever given like that and went, oh, I really regret doing that. I've never heard one story like that. All right, so one, strive to be someone who refreshes others. Two, lead others to do good, but don't compel them. Last one, set gracious expectations for each other. Again, look at verses 21 and 22. Is there any doubt that Paul expected Philemon to change? Confident of, the, of your obedience, he writes, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. He put an expectation in front of him. But then he filled it with grace. He continues, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. He sets this expectation. And then he says, if the Lord wills it, I'm going to come. Now, why is he going to come? Well, one might be accountability. I'm going to check to make sure that you followed through. I care too much about you and too much about Onesimus and too much about the work of the kingdom to leave it at a letter. But I think it's more than that. I think Paul knows how hard a call this is. And he wants to come and help to nurture to serve both Onesimus and Philemon in the church in any way he can. We are called to set gracious expectations for each other. As we do, let's remember what the standard is. What's the standard for our expectations as a church? Or maybe I should say, who's the standard? You're in church is one really good, easy answer. Jesus, Jesus, right? Jesus is the standard. It's not what I think. It's not what you think. It's Jesus. Jesus is the reason we're here. If he wasn't, we wouldn't, we'd be playing golf this morning, right? The reason we're a team as a church is because of Jesus. Jesus is our head, and so he sets the expectations. And so... As we set expectations before one another, let's make sure that it's not our expectations. Well, I think this or I think that, but instead Jesus and his expectations that we put before each other. 
The scripture is the way we know Jesus. It's why we hold out the scripture to one another, not beating each other over the head with it, but pointing one another to our Lord with it. It's how we create a culture where we can be transformed. I'll show you a graph really quick. We're, we're, we're getting near the end. I know this is a long one, but let me, let me show I was taught this. A guy named Mike Breen put this in front of me many, many years ago and said, hey, be careful about the type of culture you're creating. There's, there's four different types of cultures. Culture is formed by the level of invitation or welcome or relationship and the level of challenge. This will become clear as I spell it out. So he said, sometimes you can have a culture that is low challenge and low invitation. That's boring. That's standing in line at Kroger. Really, when you think about it, right? You're there with people. Someone's right in front of you, but you're not going to challenge them. And really, you don't even want relationship with them. If they turn around and start talking to you, you're probably like, uh, can I have the National Enquirer, please, right? Because I want to pretend that we don't want that, obviously. Also, beware of culture that is high challenge but low invitation. That's stressful. It's discouraging. It's cable news where you have one talking head talking to another talking head. They're challenging each other, Right? but they have no relationship. They don't care about each other at all. This could be the dominant parent or the coach. This is the legalistic church, right? I don't really care about your life. All I wanna do is tell you what I think you ought to do. Third one, be careful. For when we have a high invitation, high relationship culture, but low challenge, this is cozy culture. This, my friends, I think is the greatest danger to us and many churches. We just love each other so much. We want to be around each other. We have a high relationship with each other, but because of that, we're afraid of challenging each other. What if you don't agree with me? What if this problem, this idea, this belief what if we have different thoughts about it? And so you just don't talk about it. Watch out. Transformation doesn't take place when that's the culture. It does take place when there's high invitation and high challenge at the same time. That's where disciples are made. That's what we mean when we say love first. We want to welcome everybody because of the love of Christ. We know who he is. But as we live into the love of Christ, it means we love you enough that we might eventually mess with you. Right? We're going to mess with each other. We're going to point each other to the scripture and say, do you really believe that? Why are you doing that? I love you enough that I'm not just going to turn the other way and ignore it because I know that's destructive for you and for the world. I don't know if we're there yet, but I think we're getting there. This is what Philemon calls us to. And personally, we're called to refresh one another, lead but not compel, and hold out gracious expectations. 
Because by that, Jesus might be glorified. Let me end with one story. You all know John Newton, right? John Newton. He wrote Amazing Grace. Now you're like, oh yeah, now I know him, right? Everybody knows Amazing Grace. John Newton. John Newton, you may be aware, was a slave trader. He, he ran a slave ship. And then he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And often when you hear John Newton's life reflected on, it sounds as if John was giving himself to this despicable evil practice. He came to Jesus, and then he immediately became an abolitionist and opposed slavery. That's often the way his life is framed, and it's not true. Here's what happened. He's a slave trader. He comes to faith in Jesus. Because of the gospel in his life, he decides, I'm going to try to clean up my slave trading ship and make it the most healthy environment for the slave cargo that I'm carrying. Like, give them water. Okay, good, I think, but certainly not enough. See, the Spirit had to lead John Newton through this path of transformation, where the gospel infects his life so that he eventually opposed slavery and wrote words like these, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Ah, he looked at himself. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Imagine for a moment. Newton comes to faith, decides to go to a church, and because of his occupation, the church he enters into is filled with people that say, oh, heck no, get out. You're not welcome here. I don't know if it happened. Could have. Imagine Newton comes to faith and he walks into a different church and says, yeah, come on in. No, we're not worried about what you do for a living. And, you know, it, we all do our own things. It doesn't really matter. There's, there's, you know, one thing's as good as the next. Neither one of those can happen, right? Imagine if Paul says, hey, Philemon, I'm done with you. Imagine if Paul says, hey, Philemon, do whatever you want. It's fine. Nah, we can't do either one. Thank goodness Paul didn't, God's word didn't, John Newton didn't, and may we not either. May ours be a fellowship of high welcome and invitation and high expectation and gracious challenge. And may we each personally do our part to refresh, to lead, and to graciously expect Jesus from one another. Let's pray as we do. Lord Jesus, thank you for this fellowship that you have given us. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard to live in the tension of these realities and to embody your very presence here in the world. That's why it's called a mystery, Lord. Seems very common most of the time as we try to relate to one another, try to work and live out the gospel. 
But would you help us believe that something uh, much more than common, but in fact eternal and glorious is taking place as you, Jesus, are revealed, for you are the hope of glory. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed our First Pres Mommy podcast. Learn more about our church at our website, firstpresmommy.org. Have a great week.